Good morning. All right, let's begin class with prayer this morning. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for an opportunity to study, and we thank you for this beautiful spring day. We ask you that your spirit would be with us, and your angels will, will um, be, be about us and hold back any evil forces that will try to distract us. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Our lesson this week is Lesson 12 in our quarterly Glimpses of Our God, and the title this week is Love Stories. And somebody read for us the memory verse, which is Jeremiah 31 3. Somebody read that for us. The Lord has appeared over to me, saying, Yes, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness, I have drawn you. What do you hear in this passage? A pursuer. A pursuer. Oh, I like that. Does anyone want to share um, how in their life they've experienced God pursuing them and drawing them with his loving kindness? When I was seven, I asked my mom and dad, my mom and her mother never got along. And so when I was seven, I asked my, I felt this conviction to ask to spend the week with her. It was like spring, you know, week. And my mom was like, okay. And I went, and I mean, that's when I first went to church. And I think God was already ahead of me for sure, trying to encourage me through my grandmother because I didn't have faith during the week at home that I did with her. So I like what you said there. And one of the things I put down is, is through loving Christian friends or family members who reach out in love and witness to us, God can, can reach us through that. Well, also, too, my mom did not like her mother. And he, you know, softened her heart for her to let me. If she would have said no, then I wouldn't have been here today. Nice, nice. In my life, I've experienced, after stumbling and falling and, you know, making those embarrassing, sinful mistakes that we make, God's continued grace and love and acceptance of me. I've never experienced God once say to me, I told you so. Have you ever experienced that when you've made a mistake? God's rubbing your nose in it and embarrassing you with it? Have you ever? Never once. He's always so gracious, always so loving, always so kind, always so accepting. Um, I've also experienced through friends who know God, who have known me and seen all the ugly warts in my character, and who still love me anyway, that acceptance is very, very healing. And I'm going to suggest to you one of the reasons, one of the reasons many people leave the church is because they may engage in activities that violate their own morals or their values or their principles, and they find themselves accepted by a peer group who is outside the church and judged by the people in the church. And that acceptance is very healing. And it drives people away. And part of our, our challenge is to love like Christ loves. Remember the woman caught in adultery, thrown down before Christ? He knew all the things that she'd been doing. Or the woman at the well and her six husbands that weren't her husband. You know, the six men that wasn't her husband. Uh, neither do I condemn you. He had an attitude that loved people and didn't focus on the mistakes they made. And it opened opportunity for them to live better lives. Yes. We, we have a friend, and we just saw a beautiful example of that this morning as we were looking at his um, Facebook page. And it, I don't want to go into any details, but he'd been in ministry. It resulted in him actually serving, a, something he did resulted in him serving a prison sentence, having to leave ministry, and his wife stood by him through something really horrific. Um, now, and the people in the church, this little church, loved him when he got out of prison. They loved his wife. Um, and he's now, um, there, we just saw they're in Africa, 
They looked very happy. They're serving God. And I just thought that was a beautiful example of how his life could have took. I mean, it, 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 God still uses him. Well, I want to encourage each of you. Thank you so much. Um, when we have, you know, messed up, our consciences convict us. We, we are afraid. We're afraid we won't be loved. We're afraid we'll be rejected. We're afraid we will be laughed at. We're afraid we'll be abandoned. We have terrible fear in, in, in guilt and sin. And it's very redemptive to have people love us and accept us with the knowledge of what we've done. And we have an opportunity to, to love people that way. We don't, we don't love the, the sin, but love the sinner. And I think it's very sometimes hard for us to do that because we, we sometimes can be raised in a circumstance where we are, are too busy looking at the, uh, the behaviors rather than the person. Uh, other ways that I've been shown, and, and you mentioned how this man's wife stuck with him. Well, I've been shown Christ's life, love through my wife, Christy. She shows me Christ's love all the time. And then how about events in your life? Have you ever seen God's work, his love, through various circumstances and events where doors open or doors close or things work out that you could have never worked out for yourself? You know, the Red Sea's part, so to speak. Uh, And you see God's hand working. Now, did you hear in this passage, this memory verse, the method on how love works? There's a method described here. With loving kindness... I have drawn you. See, drawn you instead, instead, instead of pushing. But the method is by loving kindness, he draws us rather than with a whip, he drives us. You see the, the difference here? Now, it reminds me of Romans 2.4 where it says the kindness of God leads us to repentance. Romans 2.4, the kindness of God leads us to repentance. Now, do you believe this is true? Do you believe that the kindness of God leads us to repentance? Yes. Do you believe that love, genuine, healthy love, is kind? Yes. Is genuine, healthy love ever unkind? No. Okay. If, if, if that's true, then, consider discipline. If a parent loves a child, will the parent discipline or not discipline the child? Discipline. Is discipline loving or unloving? Unloving. Kind or unkind? Does discipline take away freedom or assist the child in developing genuine freedom? Assisting. Well, from a child's perspective, it may not always appear as loving or kind. Okay. So if love is always seeking to draw with loving kindness, to protect, to heal, to restore, can we use this fact as a measuring stick, a standard to test certain doctrines and theories about God? If that's the way it works. Does love use power to inflict harm for purposes of causing torture with no hope of recovery? Okay, so a doctor, for instance, somebody presents in the emergency room with a dislocated hip. And a doctor, this is a very, it is an emergency circumstance. That hip needs to be reduced or else there can be necrosis of the femoral head and all kinds of problems. A doctor will reduce that, that hip. I don't know if you've ever seen that done. It's kind of a very, you might almost say violent, <laughs> um, because the, the muscles are so strong, you have to put in tremendous force to pull and reduce that, that hip. Uh, and what do you think that experience feels like to have that hip reduced while it's going on? Well, that's a very painful thing. Is the doctor intending to inflict pain? Is he trying to inflict pain? No, he's trying to heal and restore. Will the doctor, so the doctor will in loving kindness, do what's necessary to save and protect and heal, minimizing pain as far as possible, but yet when there's brokenness, pain can occur. 
Will a doctor, though, who has a patient with a terminal illness who refuses treatment take a whip out and beat the patient? A loving parent may discipline a child who is disobedient, and the discipline may be painful for the child and the parent, right? Yeah. But will a loving parent torture and execute a disobedient child? Hmm. Does the fact that God always acts with loving kindness rule out certain interpretations of Scripture? Yes. Then how do we understand this passage? Luke chapter 12, 47 and 48. And that servant who knew the Lord's will and made not ready, nor did according to his will, shall be beaten with many stripes. But he who knew not and did the things worthy of stripes shall be beaten with few stripes. And whoever and whomsoever much is given... Um, from him, much shall be required, and whosoever much is committed, uh, him they will ask uh, for the Lord for more. So what do you think about this, this passage? I've heard this used to suggest this is how God will punish the wicked in the end. Those who've done really, really bad stuff, like Hitler, get tortured for days and days and weeks before he kills them. And those who've done just really any-bitty stuff, you only get tortured a little time before he kills them. Yes? We have a passive voice here, so we don't know who's doing the beating. We do have a passive voice. I'm just telling you how it's being used. Can we? Does loving kindness, does, does love inflict torture on those who disobey? Well, think it through also in, in the context. Um, in, in the context of a society in which there were slaves owned by masters. Were the slaves valuable property? Do you think it was common practice that if a slave disobeyed, they would kill the slave? They might beat the slave, they might discipline the slave, but would they, would they execute? I mean, this is valuable property, isn't it? No, it wasn't beating. And anywhere in the context of the text, do you find in the text itself anywhere where the, where the servant was killed? No, they're not being killed. I'm just pointing this out because there are many people who hold a certain view of God who use this text and say, hey, this is, is, is God punishing. Yes? The goal is to have a servant or slave at the end of it is even more valuable than what they started with. Become a steward. Yeah, somebody you can have confidence in and trust. Yeah. If a man says to a woman, with loving kindness, I have drawn you. I have pursued you with patience, kindness, and love. But if you don't love me, I'm going to beat you till you die. What happens in the heart of the woman? Can God's kindness lead us to repentance while he says at the same time, if you don't repent, I'll kill you? You see the contradiction here. Well, perhaps this is a misunderstanding. This occurs because of a misunderstanding. And some, some teach God as a torturer because of a misunderstanding of the divine character. Read the first paragraph in the lesson. It says, love is perhaps the most readily recalled attribute of God. And indeed, we cannot overestimate God's love nor exhaust the depth of it. But perhaps there is one aspect of his deep love that is not reg- uh, duly regarded, and that is uh, God is romantic. My, my first question is that first sentence. Um, now, I'm not an English major. Maybe there's some English professors in here that could help us out. Um, but does it say the same thing to say, God is love, and love is an attribute of God's character? Are those the same thing? See, to me, to say love is an attribute diminishes the divine character from love to an admixture of various attributes. Loving being one amongst many. 
And I think this is a fundamental mistake of those who believe God will torture his children in the end. Um, I've often heard it, heard it said things like, God is not only loving, he's, just. he's also just. You've heard it too. Well, see, that statement alone diminishes the divine character. How? Is it true that you and I can be loving at times? Yes. Are you and I love? No. Are we love? No. To take God who is love and say he is loving diminishes him. God is love. So, if we understand it this way, then we can say we understand that justice or just loving or love is always just. Another way to say this, justice is an expression of love. And in biblical justice, I want to show you what biblical justice looks like. I think you're going to be blown away. Because we have certain words in our mind that we have connotations based on our environment and society. And when we hear those words, we automatically get certain images. And when you hear the word justice, what's the image that comes to your mind? A judicial system, punishment, uh, crime, holding accountable. I mean, isn't this, in other words, the, the wrongdoer must, must be brought to justice, right? Isn't this what you hear? Listen, listen to Bible justice with me. And you can write these texts down. It's in the notes for those who, who go to our website and get the notes. This is Psalms 82.3. Defend the poor and the fatherless. Do justice, justice to the afflicted and needy. What is justice here? Defending the poor and the fatherless. Okay, how about the next one? Isaiah 1, 16 and 17. Wash yourselves clean. Stop all this evil that I see you doing. Yes, stop doing evil and learn to do right. See that justice is done. Help those who are oppressed. Give orphans their rights and defend the widows. What is justice here? Helping the needy. Well, here's another one. Isaiah 30, verse 18. The Lord is waiting to be kind to you. He rises to have compassion on you. The Lord is a God of justice. What is justice? Or here's another one. Um, Jeremiah 21, 12. This is what the Lord says to the dynasty of David. Give justice each morning to the people you judge... Help those who have been robbed. Rescue them from oppressors. What is every one of these justice doing here? What is it doing in every time? What do you hear? Is justice punishing the oppressors or delivering the oppressed? Satan has got us backwards, guys. He's got us thinking biblical justice is to punish oppressors. It is not. Biblical justice is to deliver the oppressed. That's what biblical justice is. And the Jewish word for justice... uh, Sadaka actually means, the meaning of the word, you look it up, is charity. The giving of your resources, time, energy to help someone else without expecting something in return. That's Bible justice. So biblical justice is delivering the oppressed, not punishing the oppressor. Where did the idea originate that justice is punishing the oppressor rather than delivering the oppressed? Where did such an idea come from? There's a certain theme I've been hammering for a few months now. (laughs) Anybody know what that theme is? Thank you. It came from accepting imperial Rome's change in God's law. It's exactly where it came from. God's law is the law that life is built upon. The law of love, he constructed life to operate in harmony with his own self. When somebody breaks a law like that, 
what's the just or right course to take? Well, let me give you an example. If somebody decides, there's, uh, somebody becomes suicidal and jumps off a building, would it be right, would it be just to seek to punish them? Would it be right and just to seek to save them if you could? Yes. How about if somebody, you walk in and somebody, a family member, somebody you know, has, has gotten depressed and suicidal and they've decided to break the law of respiration and they're, and they're hanging by a cord that they've, they've hung themselves by. They're breaking the law of respiration. Would it be just and right to punish them? Get out a belt and beat them. Would it be just and right to deliver them and save them? You see, if the law is the law that life is built upon, when you break that law, it results in damage and eventual death and destruction. And the just and right thing to do is to deliver somebody to save them. But how about if the law is Rome's version of law? It's imposed upon people, like our our laws. When you break that law, then what's justice look like? Punishment. And of course, remember Daniel 7.25 said that the little horn power would seek to change God's laws. And how did it do it? By getting us all to believe that God's law is like Rome. He imposes it upon his creatures, and therefore he must punish those who disobey. Yes? You know, I love StoryCorps on NPR. Mm-hmm. Where they had was about a woman who a man had killed her son. And eventually through, you know, a series of events and them connecting, he actually lives next door to her now. And, and it is so hard for people to believe that somebody could do that. And I just see that as so much more restorative than if we kept him in a prison system. And that is not normal. That is God. Exactly. Yeah, restoration, healing. And, it, and, and hopefully your, your mental computers are starting to and start to go through all those Bible texts you've learned as a kid. And you start thinking, okay, uh, what are all the Bible metaphors teaching? The plan of salvation. Throw me out Bible, the Bible examples of what God is trying to do. Rebirth, new heart, right spirit. Come on, come on, come on. You write the law on the heart and mind. What are all the metaphors? Circumcision of the heart by the Holy Spirit. Take the heart of stone out, put a heart of flesh in. I mean, all the metaphors, what are they actually teaching? Healing. Healing, renewal, restoration. That's what they're all teaching. And that's what God is trying to achieve. He wants to put us back in harmony with the law that life is built upon. He wants to fix what's broken in us. Sunday's lesson describes the first love relationship. Adam and Eve, who were made in the image of God and told to be fruitful and multiply. God designed us to not only experience emotional and romantic and physical uh, love um, in in the context of relationship, he also uh, made us to experience and uh, produce offspring. So, why does God, why did God create us in the way He did to experience such pleasure? Any ideas on that? Whose image were we created in? Image of God. And the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit come into unity of love and give of themselves, and new life springs forth. And so we have a man and a woman created in His image who come into the unity of love and create beings in their image. Do you think God gets joy and pleasure out of creating? Well, I think this is part of the reason why he created us to have joy and pleasure in the, in the, in the act of, of procreation. That God wants us to, to have some intimacy with him and knowledge of that. 
How does Satan attack God's design for pleasure? Not just love, romantic pleasure, but all pleasure. And this would require us to contrast the way God designed us to experience pleasure and then the difference between the way Satan pursues pleasure or has us pursue pleasure. God's design for pleasure, it's always a result, a consequence of being in harmony with his methods, his designs, and his principles. We will experience pleasure, joy, happiness. For instance, if we exercise regularly, we naturally experience endorphins and keflins and dopamine, which cause us to have mood elevations and a sense of, uh, if anybody's ever had a runner's high, okay, it's pleasurable. Okay, because we're doing something in harmony with God's natural design. If we help another person uh, altruistically to, to help them in some way, we naturally experience calming of our amygdala, our fear circuits, activation of the anterior cingulate cortex, which results in a sense of calm, a sense of peace, a sense of well-being and, and joy. If we love another person, genuine love, uh, we experience a dopamine and oxytocin increases, which calm the amygdala and result in peace and joy and pleasure. Uh, sex in the context of a healthy, selfless, loving marriage not only brings physical pleasure, but results in bonding, unity, increased trust, brain changes of increased oxytocin and dopamine, which result in calming of the fear circuits, more joy, peace, contentment, eradication of fear, perfect love, casting out fear. All these brain changes happen when we operate in harmony with God's design. How does Satan attack this design? Any thoughts? Turns it into something selfish. We ultimately turns into something selfish. That's right, which means we're not seeking to give, we're seeking to get. Pleasure for the sake of pleasure. So he gets people to seek activities that will directly stimulate the pleasure circuits of the brain, not as a result or consequence of doing what's healthy and right. Okay? So drugs cause an artificial increase in dopamine without exercise, with, without altruistic giving, without some new... Um, I, I, didn't, I didn't put this one there. I'll throw it in as a side. Have you ever struggled with a, with a cognitive problem, a, 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 some, something in school, a problem you're trying to learn, something you're trying to understand, and maybe you've wrestled for weeks with it, and finally the light goes on and you get it. Ah, I get it. You ever had that? Do you get a moment of pleasure? It feels good? Yes, that's cognitive development, uh, uh, developing your reasoning, your insight, and your, and your wisdom. And as the light goes on, there's actually a release of brain chemicals that gives you a, a sense of pleasure and joy in that. That's, that's the way God designed it to happen. When people do drugs, they will artificially cause the pleasure circuits of the brain to release dopamine, and we get this artificial high, this euphoria, this, this good feeling. But at the same time, it causes gene expression changes that will, up, that will cause proteins to be produced that were not produced before, that will cause the fear circuits of the brain to become um, more sensitive. And, we, and, and when it's over, we have more anxiety, more fear. We have guilt. We damage prefrontal cortex. We can't reason as well. The anterior cingulate cortex gets damaged. We become isolated. We become suspicious and distrusting of other people. So we are damaged neurologically, relationally, psychologically, spiritually when we take drugs and activate the, the, the pleasure circuits directly. But it feels good while we're doing it. Hey, feels good. Sex outside a healthy marriage brings momentary pleasure, but it also increases anxieties, worries, fear of rejection, guilt, and, and potentially health problems and other things. What about sometimes people get pleasure in taking revenge? You ever been tempted? Uh, come on, come on, guys. I'm not the only one here, right? <laughs> you ever been tempted? Somebody's done you wrong and you just want to smack them and maybe you verbally smack them or you embarrass them and you put them in their place. It felt good, didn't it? 
Or you just imagine doing that. Or you just imagine doing it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, am I the only one in here that's done that? No. Um, but what happens when you do that? There might be a momentary sense of, yeah, you got yours. <laughs> but there's also, followed by that, fears, anxieties, worry of retali- retaliation, potential guilt, um, am I going to get found out? Um, all these types of things, potentially. You see, Satan's methods bring momentary pleasures, but they activate the fear circuits of our brain. And they worsen our anxiety. They elevate inflammatory factors in our body, uh, which result in damage to both body and brain, increase anxiety disorders, depression, and ultimately make us more self-referenced and self-focused. We're out to protect ourselves now. Thoughts about any of this? Questions? Yeah. How do we not do those things? I mean, how do we um, just surrender, let go, let God? How do we not do those things once the devil's got you in that trap of revenge or what anger or whatever? How do you not, how do you pull out of that? You know, that's a great question. And um, it really depends on what the hooks are in your particular situation that holds you there. Everybody's a little bit different. Some people might be held there because, um, for instance, in a, in a cycle of, of anger, resentment, and, and um, bitterness, wanting to hold somebody accountable, seeking revenge, because they um, were mistreated and they believed that um, if they let go and forgive and let it, let it go, that the person will never be held accountable and they're not going to let them get away with it. Okay, so there could be this concept that, hey, you mistreated me, nobody, you've never been caught, you've never been punished, you've never had any consequences, I'm not going to let you get away with this, I'm going to hold you accountable type, kind of an idea construct. Uh, what would help a person with, with that problem? Any ideas? Because this happens, I have a lot of girls, ladies who come to see me who are molested as kids. And this is a, a, a trap that they will end up in because the person who molests them is often not caught, punished, held accountable. They might even be an elder in the church. Everybody thinks wonderful of them. I have wives who are in, in relationships where their spouses are leaders in the church, pastor, elder, deacon, and everybody thinks wonderful of the spouse, but, the, but at home, the husband is, is beating his wife. Lots of resentment and hostilities going on there. Um, how do we help somebody resolve that? How can they let that go? See the truth. What's the truth that they need to see? That the other person is more damaged than they are. Thank you very much. Ultimately, this is a truth that's not seen very well by a lot of people. Sin damages the sinner. Sin damages the sinner. So I'll ask patients, I'll say, you know, um, they will often say things to me like, I just wish they would admit what they did. And I will say, okay, let's take that at face value. If they admit what they did right here, right today, what will they necessarily go through? Won't there be a lot of self-loathing, guilt, shame, self-disgust if they actually admit it? They actually accept it truthfully? Not cognitive. I mean really admit the reality of what they've done. Yes, there will be a lot of conviction, guilt, self-loathing, self-disgust. This is why they deny and distort. Because they don't want to deal with those awful things. So, um, I will give them this analogy. I I will ask them, who do you think got damaged worse when you were being mistreated as a child? You or... Uncle Joe, who was mistreating you. Well, me. Well, let's say God took you to heaven and gave you a choice between two options. One choice. You can choose option A. I'm sending you back to earth, and your life is exactly as it's been. I'm not making any changes. Everything's the same. Or, if you choose, because I know you've been having a hard time, 
I'll, I'll let you trade lives with the person who molested you. And you won't get molested, but you'll go around molesting kids. Whose life do you choose? 100% of my patients choose their own. Why? And I say, why? Why would you choose your own if you got damaged worse? His life's better. You see, when you get mistreated by somebody at any age, you can be damaged physically, you can be damaged emotionally and psychologically, but your conscience remains clear, your soul remains undamaged. When you do harm to somebody else, you warp your conscience, you sear your conscience, you warp your character, you damage your soul, and you become more and more like Satan in heart. And when you recognize that reality, I don't have to help them. Nobody ever gets away with it. Because every act of sin reacts upon the sinner and changes us. And then we can say, wow, I don't have to hold them accountable. In fact, I feel sorry for what they've done to themselves. Yes, Russ. It takes me back to the text that says, don't fear the one who can destroy the body. Just fear the one who can destroy the soul. Body and soul, yes. Body and soul, which is us, us by our choices and our own decisions. That's right. That's exactly right. Well said. Well said. So, then what about, say, addictions? How do Somebody's in a cycle of addiction. How do they get free from that? Any, any ideas? Any thoughts? Well, generally, most people that I've dealt with in addictions don't need more cognitive light. Most people who smoke know smoking's damaging them. Most people who have alcohol know that alcohol is destructive. Most people in cocaine or any of these other addictions know that the addictions are damaging them. They don't need cognitive awareness to let them know, you know, you've got an addiction. Now, sometimes in the very early stages of the addiction, in the very, very early, when they're just getting addicted, they may not know. They may not. Well, you know, I've only been smoking three months. And three months isn't going to harm me too much. Okay, so they may not really know. You know, I've only been taking OxyContins for, you know, two weeks. I've only done LSD three times. You know, in the very beginning, they might have a lack of awareness that there's really much damage going on. But once they're into it and they're really addicted to it, they usually have awareness that something's, that this is not healthy. If you ask them, do you think this is healthy for you? Only a couple of patients in all my years have I actually said, said to me, well, my smoking helps me breathe better. (laughs) Only one or two. You know, most of them really know it's not helping them. Okay, So usually it's not cognitive awareness for most people once they're into an addiction. They know it. It's, it's something else that holds them there. And, and so cognitive truth, hey, addictions are damaging you generally. Now with the adolescents, adolescents sometimes can be benefited this way because adolescents live in a world of denial about everything. Mom and dad's dumb, they don't know anything. Or should I say aunt and uncle are dumb, they don't know anything. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, world of denial. You know, it wasn't Mark Twain said that when he, 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 he couldn't believe how much his parents learned from the time he was 15 to the time he was 20, they really learned a lot? <laughs> yeah. Okay. So with, with uh, teenagers, sometimes that I have addicts that come in, they're smoking marijuana. And by the way, most teenagers don't think that smoking is healthy for them. They don't. Most teenagers don't think that cocaine and LSD and these things are healthy. The one that, the one that seems they all seem to live in denial is marijuana. They all seem to think marijuana doesn't hurt anybody. Okay? That's the one. The rest of them they're pretty much okay on. Uh, they, they realize it can be damaging. But marijuana. So I will show them some spec scans and brain scans and show what, what happens to brains of people smoking marijuana in 16-year-old brains and stuff like that. And, and uh, all but one person that I've dealt with so far, when they saw those scans, they go, oh my goodness. I had no idea. 
Okay, so that enlightenment can be helpful to somebody at that 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 stage. One one person though uh, was still was so in love with her marijuana that she said, "Oh no, that's just government studies." It wasn't government studies, by the way, but it was government studies. And government studies are done on on government stocks of marijuana, and those are are raised with all types of pesticides and toxins and funguses have got in them. And it's and the and the damage you're seeing is because they've got pesticides and fungus and stuff in them. And if they would have our our naturally grown marijuana that we grow, then you wouldn't have all these problems. You see? Yeah, our organic marijuana. There we go. <laughs> See how denial can work. We can twist things. Yeah. No, marijuana is and the chemicals are damaging. Is, so is, isn't every addict in some form of denial? Yes. There's some phase of denial in, in every addict. So how do we how do we help a person like that? Ultimately, the thing that needs to happen is truth has to come home to bear, not in a cognitive way, but in an experiential way. They have to experience the consequences of their choices. And what can what, what uh, codependency does it will often people in the family will insulate people from experiencing the consequences of their choices. They will rescue them. They will buffer them. They don't because we don't want to see our family members hurt. So we rescue and buffer, and it it can delay. It's like touching a hot stove. Don't let the kid feel pain. Well, you know it's that pain that causes you to pull back fast. Without pain, you might leave it there till you smell flesh frying. See? And so ultimately, though, for an addict, somebody who's actually an addiction, they have to, and you go to a 12-step meeting sometime and ask. Just say, I, I'm curious, what is it that's necessary to bring somebody with an addiction to the point that they're really willing to get help and change their life? They'll tell you, you have to hit rock bottom. You have to hit rock bottom. And as long as there is some thread, some little tiny niche that you can grab onto that allows you to think that you can still make it with your addiction, you won't give up your addiction. You have to come to a point where you realize there is no way I can make it with this addiction. Rock bottom. We admit that our lives are powerless. and become, uh, We admit that our lives have become unmanageable and we are powerless over our addiction. Yes. So that, that's, that's the step. So to the degree you can help people come to that rock bottom point, that's a very helpful thing. Um, and then... This is what Christ meant when he said, those who are well don't need a physician. It's those who are sick that need a physician. And this is on any level, not just addictions. If you don't think you have a medical problem, you're not going to a doctor. If you don't think you have a spiritual problem, you're not going to Christ. If you think you're righteous and pious and you've got everything figured out, then you're not going to ask Christ for deliverance. So you have to come to the point that you are aware and acknowledge that you have a problem. Once you're aware and acknowledge you have a problem, then you can then seek help and deliverance from that problem. So that would be the thing. How do you bring people to a conviction? They've got a problem they can't fix. Okay. All right. Um, fourth paragraph. Uh, and let's see. What day are we on? I guess we're, oh, we're on Sunday. Fourth paragraph. Uh, it says, in verse 24, the Bible says that man will leave his parents and cleave to his wife, uh, and they shall be one flesh. Question. What happens when spouses marry? But one of them doesn't leave mother or father, usually emotionally, and continues to put the desires, wishes, feelings, needs, and expectations of the parents ahead of the spouse. Disaster. What happens? Can there be healthy relationships, either with the parents or with the spouse, if this happens? Has anybody ever seen it happen or just me in my practice? Yeah, I've seen a few hands go up. Yes. This is always devastating and destructive. Um, if this happens, why do some people do this? 
What is the motivation for a person to marry and not put their spouse first, but to leave a parent ahead of the spouse? What, what, what's the underlying motivation for that? Anybody ideas? So, fear. Thank you. Fear. It's always fear. Fear of not being loved, fear of rejection, fear of disappointing somebody, fear of hurting somebody's feelings, fear of abandonment. But notice that the motivation for this is fear. It is not love. Love casts out fear. This is fear-based living, not love-based living. Bottom uh, green section, it says, Romantic love is such a wonderful God-given gift to humanity. If you are in a proper romantic relationship, what things can you do to protect it from, from going wrong? And so, question, what can we do to enhance the likelihood of having a healthy, godly, romantic relationship? I've, I've listed eight things here that we can do. So what, what can we do? Be selfless. Be selfless, Okay. Be selfless. Choose a healthy, godly person. Ah, okay. Number one, number one, healthy relationships require healthy people. It's a requirement. So the number one thing you can do to have a healthy relationship is do all you can through God's grace to be a healthy person yourself. And then choose a healthy partner. I mean, that's the number one thing. Most people who get in relationships and they're stressed will spend their energy trying to change the partner. But the number one thing they can do to improve the relationship is ask God, what can I do to become healthier, more godly, more gracious, bring your principles to bear in governance of me? I can't change my partner. How can I become healthier in everything I do in relation to my partner? That's the number one thing we can do. Number two, honest, honesty. Communicate openly, truthfully. If you want a healthy relationship, there has to be honesty. What happens to a relationship if there's dishonesty? No, no relationship. Well, there is a relationship, but it's dysfunctional, it's fear-based, it's insecure, there's no trust. So there has to be openness and honesty. And so if a wife cooks you a meal, men, and you really don't like it, what do you do when she says, how'd you like it? Tell <laughs> <laughs> the truth and love and leave her free to decide. Absolutely. You absolutely say, hey, thank you so much for taking the time to fix me a meal. It means so much to me. You care enough to cook a meal for me. But i got to tell you, you can knock this one off future meals. <laughs> it didn't resonate with my taste buds. But I know you love me. Thank you so much. But let's not keep this one on the future menu. If you lie to her and tell, you, tell her you like it, <laughs> number one, you're going to get it again. <laughs> okay? And number two... Don't you guys think, don't, come on, in your relationships, can't you tell when there's a disconnect between the words and the heart? You see, truthful communication means that the mouth and the words and the heart are in unity. When you really don't like it, but you say you do, whether she consciously f- figures it out or not, on some level, there's a resonance problem there. It will be felt. Yes, way in the back. I, I made my husband's lunch when we were first married and sent off with him to work. And when he got home that evening, he said, I really appreciated you making that for me. And he said, but, um, and he's, you know, was kind of worried about how I would feel about it. And I said, no, just to be blunt, I'd rather hear it. He says, well, grilled cheese is not meant to come into lunch in a lunch sack. It's meant to be cooked and then we eat it. And I was like, well, I'm domestically challenged. So I was like, well, okay. And then, but after that, but I really appreciated him telling me because I would have kept doing it if he had not told me that. Exactly. Well, I was just thinking of maybe another alternative that response would be is if she's really trying to do something that's really in your best interest and you're just not there yet, but you recognize that. For instance, a more healthy diet, 
you could say to her, honestly, that isn't something I really like yet, but I want to get there. But maybe you don't want to get there. <laughs> I, mean, that, I mean, that would be a lie. If you don't want to get there, you shouldn't lie about it. I've got patients who don't want to get there. Maybe you need to go back to being the most healthy person you can be. Yeah. <laughs> okay. How about this? She's, uh, she's asked you if you like the new hair or the new dress she's gotten. Hey, how do you like my new hair? <laughs> um, what do you say? Do you lie? Well, see, if you, if you tell her that you really don't like that style, she might be disappointed in the moment. If you tell her you don't like that dress, she might be disappointed in the moment. But when you tell her later that the next dress or the next hairstyle, man, that looks great on you, then she'll know you mean it. If you like everything all the time, every time, then your, your opinion means nothing. Okay, question. Yes. <laughs> I love your hair, Tina. What if your spouse doesn't like the hair, the dress, whatever, and everybody else likes it? Who do you please, your spouse or everybody else? See, that's a different question. We're talking about honesty here. I just want you to answer this question. (laughs) This is real vital. Okay. Well, first off, did you notice the question? I'm going to ask the class to dissect the question. What was the question? Who do you please, your spouse or everyone else? You're going to say yourself. You please yourself. That's what you're going to come up with. (laughs) at the end of the day we are to be in governance of ourselves okay and so you use your judgment to determine which is more important for you and why why is your hair this way maybe it's this way because you are applying for a particular business position and you feel it's going to enhance your ability to get this job you're applying for uh you know something into uh, a graduate school program or whatever and you're going for an interview you've done this purposely because it's it's strategic to get this job and your husband may not like it but i mean there could be a thousand reasons why you've done something and dressed in a certain way that make good sense to you in this context, in this situation, in this position. Your husband still may not like it. Does that mean you go, okay, I'm going to change it in this context, even though my judgment thinks it's best for me to have it in this context? No. But if it's really down to, well, you know what? I like seven different types of hairstyle, or I like all these different dresses. My husband really likes this one, and he doesn't really appreciate that one. Then you go, is it important to me whether my husband finds me attractive in this or not, or doesn't really like that one? Is that value to me? Is that a value to me? Well, most women think it is. I know I like my wife to think that I'm attractive. Sure. That's why I let her pick. <laughs> what did he say? Oh, Bill, I am. Oh, thank you, Bill. Okay. That's why I let her pick out my clothes, right? No. <laughs> but at the end, but, but, but this is the, the issue here is about honesty. Are we willing to be honest with our spouse? If you tell her you don't like something, and my wife will tell you, there was a time in our marriage that she got her hair done, and, and I, I didn't like it, and she cried. But now when I tell her that I love her hair, she knows I mean it. Yes? Yes, but we have a trap here. You're married to a very attractive wife. <laughs> Let's say your wife weighs 200 pounds, and you're not happy about that. She's not happy about that. I have friends who are I'm very deeply sympathetic, and she says, "Does this make me? Does this dress make me look fat?" Yeah. 
Now, we've got to be careful here because everything makes her look fat. So there's no careful. It's truth. But I... the right answer is, I'll tell you the right answer in case you ever need it. Uh, the right answer is, honey, I love you and you are beautiful to me. That's not actually, the, that, that is a good answer, but I don't know if that's the right answer. I had, a, I had a patient, I had a couple that came to see me for marriage counseling, and in the, and in this, and in the counseling, the wife disclosed, the, during the course of the marriage, the wife had gained about 250 pounds from the time they were married to the time they came to see me. And she complained bitterly, she complained bitterly that he did not find her physically and sexually attractive anymore. She was angry that he didn't. And so I asked her, when you get out of the shower each morning and look in the mirror, what do you think? That's well, gross. It's disgusting. I can't stand it. Why would you expect him to think something different? That's the truth. She was angry at him, but she's really... It's not about sympathy. See, the reality was, in that marriage, he spent time with her. He, he, he we read with her, he walked with her, he, he rubbed her feet while they watched movies together, he didn't go out with anybody, he loved being with her, he loved her. But he didn't find 250 pounds physically attractive. <laughs> of, of extra weight, physically attractive. I don't think that that's in any way objectively or subjectively wrong. He loved her and he spent his time with her. But because she was unhappy with herself, she was not happy with this weight. She didn't own her own unhappiness with his weight. She wanted him to deny reality and pretend that she was just as physically attractive at 250 pounds heavier than she was in the past so that she could then live in denial about her own situation. Yes. No, he wasn't honest. He never. So she was angry. So, so her anger, her denial, and her anger precluded her from appreciating all the love she still received from him. She, they were having marriage problems because she was angry at him. She wasn't angry at him. She was angry at herself. But she blamed. This is my point. And only when he, when only when truth came to bear, and she recognized that reality, that she could then appreciate. Wow, he does love me, regardless of my weight and body size. He still loves me. Yes. I think we're dealing with some very. Close topics to our heart, like all women want to be beautiful, all men want to be, you know, respected and everything. And and uh, there's a great verse in First Corinthians eight, and it says, "Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up." And so I think that you know there there is some kind of balance here that we're trying to struggle with. And I don't even know if I can put it into words, but you know, when my wife comes to me, I always need to build her up. And Maybe that's why sometimes we lie and say, oh, you are beautiful when we don't think so. Or we say we like the food because you know, we're, we're trying to build up. Maybe we don't know how to do it. But Does love lie? Well, no, but I'd say we don't know what we're doing. But like the way God treats us, he always builds us up. Even though he knows you know, I've got problems in my life that I need to change, you know, God says, all right, I love you and I'm, I'm going to work with you and, and fix you through this. And as we come, become closer to God, I think... We learn how to do that better. Like I, I, I agree with you. I, I agree with this. My, 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 I guess my point is, you will not have a healthy marriage. It's built on deception. That's the point I'm trying to make here. If you're dishonest with your spouse, you undercut trust and confidence, and your spouse will know it. And then they won't. If you're lying to me about this, how do I know you're not lying to me about that? Honesty, uh, you can speak the truth in love. That's the thing the key you're trying to balance here. We don't just want to speak the truth brutally. We want to speak the truth in love, letting the person know that, hey, I love you enough and respect you enough to be honest with you. My heart's always for you, and I always want to build you up. 
So other things we can do to help their marriage is, uh, here's what you're saying, affirm each other regularly. Purposely find aspects of each other that genuinely appreciate and tell them truthfully the things you value and cherish about each other. Yes? Well, I was going to bring it closer to home. How many women have lied to their husbands in bed? Woo! Because we are talking romantic love. Yeah. And a lot of times they do it out of fear of damaging his ego. He wants to think he's the best. He's great, so you let him. Anybody want to comment on that? <laughs> <laughs> yes. I thought I had something to say, but I won't go there. Yeah. Yes, I, I, I think that was wisdom right there. Okay. Um, no, a fourth, pray and study together. Pray and study God's word together. This brings us closer together, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, have joint mission or projects or endeavors or hobbies or recreation, things you do together as a couple. Do things together. This brings you together. Um, respect the freedom of the other. If you disagree with your spouse about diet or TV or church attendance, lovingly share your concerns but leave them free to make up their own mind. Don't restrict the liberty of your spouse. If you try to co- coerce, pressure, threaten, control the liberty, love will be damaged in a marriage. So it has to be truth and love, leaving free. And then, oh, and then work through problems together. I see this a lot. Don't try and protect the other by holding back things that trouble you. Well, I don't want to burden them. I won't tell them that it really bothered me. I'm really frustrated over this, but I just, I, because what, what this message sends, it sends the message that I don't respect you enough, number one, to share with you what's troubling me on my heart. And number two, I see you as so weak, so fragile, that you can't actually handle life's, life's issues, so I've got to protect you from, from the challenges that we have to deal with. So don't do that. Um, obviously, use your judgment on the time and place you have these conversations when real problems arrive, but, but relationships are not defined by the problems they have. All relationships have problems. What defines the relationship is, when problems arrive, how do the two of you react? Do you pull together as a team, work together, encourage, uh, support each other, uh, try to understand each other, or do you pull apart in isolation? Do you criticize and attack? I mean, what do you do together? How do you react together when problems arise, which will reflect the, the quality of what's going on in that relationship? And the goal, of course, is to be a team. We're on each other's side. I'm there for you. You're there for me. Uh, that you can converse, open your heart, share everything with each other. I'm blessed to have a, a wife that I can do that with, and, and she's amazing. And, and we have that openness, and we, we've had problems to deal with, but I've always had this camaraderie and this support there that makes life so much easier to go through. It would be horrible to have to isolate and, and handle it all by myself. And then, don't try and fix your spouse. Can't tell many people fall into the trap of trying to fix your spouse. Don't try and fix your spouse. Love them. Share with them your understanding, your ideas, your perspectives, in, uh, including your loving insights about them, but always leave them free to change themselves through God's grace. Yes, no? Yes, okay. All right, Monday's lesson. Oh, boy. Let's skip Monday's lesson. Go to Tuesday's lesson. First paragraph, Genesis shows right from the start that romance was uh, to be the basic part of uh, the human experience. One man, one woman, period. That was God's ideal, the biblical prototype that models what romantic love was all about. And uh, so we're getting short on time. I'm kind of roll through some of this. How has sin damaged God's original design? 
I've got a whole list. All right, I'll just... Polygamy? Damage to God's original design. Yes or no? Yes. Homosexuality? Yes. Celibacy? Yes. Infertility? Out of marriage or sexual relationships? Adultery? Pornography? Paraphilias? Paraphilias are the sexual perversions like pedophilia, um, voyeurism, frauderism, all the various sexual perversions. Um, Forced marriages. Forced marriages. Submission of one spouse to another. Oh, yeah, I heard. Mm -hmm. That submission of one spouse to another is a consequence of sin. Sin has damaged the marriage relationship. As God has his way in our marriage relationships, equality in the marriage exerts itself again. Because the husband treats the wife as Christ treats the church, sacrificing himself for her. And she submits to Christ-like treatment. That's what she submits to. Not authority to be ruled over, but to Christ-like treatment. And Christ leads by domination, power over, or John chapter 13, when all power had been given to Christ, he got down on his knees and washed feet. That's how Christ leads. And the husband is to lead like that. And then what about domestic violence? Spouse abuse, whether it's physical, emotional, sexual, or spiritual abuse, is a perversion of God's design. Now, all of these I just described are a result of sin. Are all of them sin? They're all a result of sin, but they're not. Even the submission on the part of one another, you know, Adam's going to rule over you, Eve. It's a result of sin. Now, what would you be your hypothesis regarding domestic violence in the church? Hypothesis. Same frequency as non-believer, agnostic, atheists who claim no belief in God, the world. Higher frequencies of domestic abuse in the church or lower for those who claim Christ as their Savior? Wow. So if we become like Christ, we beat our spouse more? Does it mean you like Christ? Okay, but this is like an unloving picture of God, we can do that. Ah. See, research done, there's only been, as far as I know, one scientific, truly scientific research that's looked into this, uh, and it's been done by Renee Drum, Department of Social Work Services here at Southern Adventist University, um, in, a, in a statistical and significant way across the, a wide section of Seventh-day Adventist church membership. And uh, I'm going to be doing a program at the American Association of Christian Counselors in uh, April based on much of this data on domestic violence in the church. And um, the data shows that, in fact, there is no difference between the rates of uh, domestic violence in the church and domestic violence in the world. Now, question. Should there be? If people accept Jesus Christ as their Savior, have a heart that's renewed to greater love is no man that he give his life for a friend. This is how we know what love is, that Christ gave his life for us. We ought to give our lives for each other. Um, the husband should treat his wife like Christ treats the church, sacrificing himself for her. We should be renewed in the inner man of a new heart, right spirit. If the church was filled with born-again believers who have Christ in the heart, should there be lower rates of domestic violence in the church? Yes. There's no question there should be. Why do you think there's not? They have the wrong God concept. That's exactly right. I'm going to put the evidence forth in my presentation at the ACC next month that I believe that this goes directly to the view of God that you hold. 
the kind of God that you worship, you become like, you assimilate, you actually neurologically change to be like. And if you worship an authoritative and a punitive and a God who, in order to be just, must use his power to punish wickedness in the end, you bring those principles to ply in your marriages. And you are authoritarian, and you dictate over. And when disobedience occurs in your home, you must punish disobedience in order to be the righteous ruler of that home, and so forth and so on. And you're arbitrary, that's right. So um, I, I think you're exactly right. I think the reason we don't see and, and uh, more love and we see the same amounts of domestic violence is because, at, by and large, Christianity has accepted a distorted view of God. There's also that feeling that because we are in the church and we have the truth, that uh, we have to be strong and make sure our family does exactly what it takes to get to heaven and the techniques that are used with that legal perspective become sometimes violent but quite often abusive all right and and we're going to close with wednesday's lesson real quick a couple points out of wednesday's lesson um, in the jewish tradition in the jewish tradition the old testament scriptures do you know what they consider to be the most holy place of the old testament the song of solomon I won't read what's in here because we don't have time to read it, but it talks about um, the, the wisdom of, of the Song of Solomon and how uh, the book is focused on human sexuality and all these things. And, uh, of course, it's God-inspired. Does it bother anyone that this book of Scripture was written by somebody who had 700 wives? <laughs> does, that, does that trouble anyone? <laughs> Did it take 700 wives to get this wisdom? Yeah. <laughs> no, yes, I heard right here in the front. <laughs> Well, I just, I, just, I just had a big question mark in my mind as I considered that. Wow. Okay. All right. Well, the message, I think, the take-home message of the book of Song of Solomon is in uh, chapter 8, verses 6 and 7, and it says this. Close your heart to every love but mine. Hold no one in your arms but me. Love is as powerful as death. Passion is as strong as death itself. It bursts into flame and burns like a raging fire. Waters cannot put it out. No flood can drown it. If anyone tried to buy love with wealth, contempt is all they would get. Love is a raging fire. And the waters can quench it. And in the end, love will burn free on earth again one day soon. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you are love. Not not just have the ability to love. You are love. And we consider Daniel 7, as you take your throne, rivers of fire come out before you, and we understand that to be the rivers of the fire of your love, burning, burning your heart's passion for us. We open our hearts and ask that your spirit be poured out, the the spirit of love and truth, to, to fill our hearts with the truth of your kingdom, fill our hearts with your love for you and love for one another. Remove from us distorted ideas, confused thoughts that that keep us living in fear and help us go forward in your love to lighten this world for your soon return. We pray in your holy name. Amen.